2: There's no question in my view that had the war not stopped and had he carried on, you would have a situation in Europe where there was not one, not one. And that is a quite, if you think of it, that that is a truly extraordinary thing.
3: That was Lawrence Rees talking about the Nazis' desire to eliminate the Jews of Europe.
4: the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
3: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Our interview this week is with Lawrence Rees, an author, historian and award-winning filmmaker whose documentary series include The Nazis, A Warning from History and Auschwitz, The Nazis and the Final Solution. He is the author of a new book entitled The Holocaust, A New History which tells the story of the Nazis' plan to exterminate the Jews and is based in part on Lawrence's own interviews with both the victims and perpetrators. I paid a visit to Lawrence in his London home not long ago to discuss some of the issues that the book raises. First of all, prior to the Holocaust, anti-Semitism seemed to be far more prevalent in many countries other than Germany. So why do you think it was it was Germany in particular that instigated the Holocaust?
2: That's a huge question. I mean, that's the kind of thing that universities have week-long seminar courses on uh, to try and answer. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to be... Definite in one relatively brief answer, but as you say, what's important first of all to remember is that if you looked, for example, at what was happening in Russia prior to the First World War, there's many, many more instances of violent attacks on Jews in Russia than there ever were in in Germany. The anti-Semitism in Russia was of a different, violent order. So, if, as I say in the book, if you were asked, if you'd been around the early years of the twentieth century and you'd been asked to predict where this would happen, I think it's very, very unlikely that you would ever have said Germany. You would probably have said Russia. So, as you say, there's a huge question, which is why did it happen here in Germany? Why was it instigated from Germany? And I think there a number of things came together. The most important was the circumstances of the loss of the First World War because what that did was create an environment in which... You had a huge feeling of looking for someone to blame for what had happened. There was a huge amount of scapegoating going on, a sense that famously, quote, we'd been stabbed in the back by the Jews, that they had been the ones responsible for the defeat. It was nonsense, of course, but there was a real sense of wanting to believe that what had happened was someone else's fault. And then you had that at the same time, you had the rise of communism in in Russia, the, the revolution of 1917. And that spilled over in the early years immediately after the First World War into a number of uprisings in Germany, the Spartacus Revolt and the Reiter Republic in Bavaria. And Jews were involved in that. So there became this conflation that Judaism equals Bolshevism. And so the combination of all that—a fear of communism, a humiliation at the end of the war, a sense of looking for someone to blame, a sense that things had gone wrong in the whole nature of Germany, plus the removal of the monarchy, the instigate, the, the imposition, as some felt, of this of the Weimar uh, Republic, which again was associated with Jews. Again, all of these things are, are forced to, to a large degree and fantasies to a large degree. But nonetheless, many people believe them. So they they felt that there was a sense in which the whole of these institutions were now Jew-dominated, as they saw it. And so something needed to be done. And that's something that needed to be done. A whole load of Volkish groups, by that one means uh, nationalistic groups that wanted to put the German people first, the German people meaning an exclusion of Jews, but, as they saw it, the Aryan uh, people they would be put first and that, that what should happen is something should be done about the less than 1% of Germans who were Jews, who were kind of responsible for the horrors that, the, that people were going through. Now, that wasn't the Holocaust. That doesn't mean that everybody thought, well, we're going to try and ex- exterminate Jews or whatever, but there was a sense in these national groups, like the Nazis in the early years of the uh, 1920s, that something needed to be done. And the person who was most espousing the need for something to be done in the most vitriolic way from the very beginning was Adolf
3: Hitler. Obviously, we know Hitler and the Nazis were an incredibly anti-Semitic movement. But how far did that chime with the rest of the German population? And, and to what extent was that did that help or hinder their advance to power?
2: Very, very important point, because this notion that somehow Germany was this uniquely... Uh, Anti-Semitic place that the enormous numbers of Germans at this stage wanted something horrific to happen to the Jewish minority in the country isn't it simply isn't true. The majority of Germans didn't support the Nazis. In fact, in 1928, uh, the general election of 1928, the Nazis got 2.6 percent of the vote. So this notion that there was this huge upswell at that point for all of this simply isn't the case. Uh, these these are people on the fringes. And many people thought at that stage, they're on the lunatic fringe.
3: Was there ever a long-term Nazi plan or long-term plan from Hitler to exterminate the Jews? Or did it kind of come along incrementally?
2: Certainly, I think if you you read the book and you study the evidence, I don't believe that you could possibly say that in the early 1920s, Hitler had some kind of blueprint that he was going to follow to do what became the um, death camps of the East. I don't believe that. So no, but, but how I look at it is that certainly if you read Mein Kampf, uh, which Hitler wrote in 1924, it exudes a level of virtually psychopathic hatred about Jews. This is a man who has major problems. This is a man who's got major anger. This is a man who has worked out in his mind that something needs to be done about these people. Now, did he mean by that? I want to kill them all, exterminate, that that we can't know what's in the dark, very dark depths of his mind. But what I do think is that he felt absolutely something needs to be done. And at that stage, the policy of the Nazi party was clear. What that something was, was removing citizenship from these people, from Jews, and probably over time, expulsion. But that was the, the kind of direction that they were drifting. In terms of what actually happened... That actually happened due to a whole series of circumstances and Hitler's reaction to those circumstances and uh, a whole variety of different um, influences. But at the core of it was always Hitler. The core of it was Hitler's desire to do something, as he saw it, about what he called the Jewish problem. So so absolutely, I'm, I'm with the great Srin Kershaw on this and thinking no Hitler, no Holocaust. But did he have a detailed plan back in the 20s for this? I, I simply can't see the evidence of that.
3: And there was something you alluded to, that there were quite a lot of talk about expelling the Jews. There's obviously this, the Madagascar plan people yeah. talk about. I mean, how credible do you think these ideas were? I mean, had, say, the Nazis won the war, is, do you think that's what would have happened?
2: I think if the Nazis had won the war, they would have killed them all. But the way it had gone, the way they were going, I think there's no question that the reason that so many survived was because the war stopped. I mean, that you look at the the plan, the general plan to the east of, of 1942, that there's a plan to kill 20, 30 million Slavs in the eastern areas of their occupation. The Nazis took the view that there was no point in capturing the land if you had people on it, because you wanted to get the food from it. And they were there, they they referred to people as useless eaters that they wanted to eliminate. So they're talking about that for the Slavic population and and the epicenter of their hatred uh, was always the Jews. I can't see how they would have wanted one single Jew to survive. So the vision of murder was, and this is astonishing, it seems to me, but the vision was even greater than the horror that they achieved. That's one of the Absolutely terrifying things about it.
3: Can you identify a point where Nazi policy becomes the final solution that we are going to try and kill all the Jews that we can get our hands on, or is, is there never really a defined moment?
2: I think that you can you can point to a moment when that policy doesn't exist, say the ghettoization of nineteen forty, and you can point to a moment where it absolutely exists, say the summer of of, of nineteen forty three and the opening of the large new gas chamber crematoria complexes at Auschwitz-Birkenau. And within that period, say, 40 to 42, end of 42, beginning of 43, within that period, you can start narrowing down moments or milestones where they're going towards it. And I think absolutely you can do that. And there are a number along the route, the first being the invasion of the Soviet Union and the killing of uh, selected male Jews by the Einsatzgruppen and other security forces. You then see in the autumn of 1941 when Hitler makes the decision that Jews from the Old Reich and the Protectorate will be sent east, and many of them are shot. And then you see the entry of America into the war, which is a which I think is a big thing for Hitler, because it is very much the the start of the World War. And he has always prophesied that the extermination of the Jews will follow the World War. And this is the World War. You then have the meeting at Banse, which is about... Not quite about this, but it's it's about looking at, uh, it's the first sign we see of them saying 11 million Jews across Europe are at risk. Then the decision, crucial decision in the summer of 1942, where they decide that all the Jews the or the vast majority of Jews in a massive area of Poland they've called the general government are going to be killed. So what you can do if you start to deconstruct it, you can see within that period I mentioned, you can see these milestones along the way. So you can see how they end up with it, to some people it's counter-suggestible because what you want, I think when you talk about the most enormous crime there's ever been, if this was a, a sort of fictional film, you couldn't make the film if there wasn't if you didn't start off with the conspiracy meeting when all the top criminals get together and conspire and say, Right, okay, what we're we gonna do? Right, here's what we're gonna do and then implement the crime. So I think in our minds, a lot of people want to try and understand the history that way. It's actually more terrifying because you can see how once you go down this path, then they're not having to make monumental decisions necessarily in one meeting. They're simply building and building, incrementally, incrementally on a whole series of horrible decisions they're taking. And then they end up somewhere. And in a way, they end up somewhere that they can then go, wow, look, that's where we've ended up. But... It's evolved. It's evolved cumulatively through all these key moments.
3: You mentioned before Auschwitz, which I think for a lot of people is their vision or their understanding of the Holocaust. But do you think that that potentially allows people's knowledge of the Holocaust? Because it wasn't for most, actually for the majority of Jews, that's not how they ended their lives.
2: Yes, absolutely. And that's why when I did the original series on this, Nazis Warning from History nearly 20 years ago, the episode that we made in that series about the extermination programme, what I called Road to Treblinka, not Road to Auschwitz, because Auschwitz is an extremely complicated enterprise for lots and lots of different reasons because it's performing a number of different functions in the Nazi state. It was, even though it ended up being the site of the largest mass murder in the history of the world, that was only one function it provided within the Nazi state. Whereas if you look at a, a place like Treblinka, that was, and it's very hard to n- know what adjective to use, because you say it's a pure death camp. It implies there's a purity in it. And of course, there's nothing but a visceral horror in it. Or I, there's another phrase I tried, dedicated death camp. But that, that, that again sounds kind of vaguely positive, doesn't it? It was dedicated. Man. But it, it was solely created for one purpose. And between, n- no one knows exactly how many people died there. Maybe 700,000 to 900,000 people died there. 1.1 1. 1 million in Auschwitz. So very nearly of the same level. And yet, Virtually nobody goes to visit the site of Treblinka. And if you did go and visit it, what you would see is very interesting. What you would see is there's nothing there but the monument, and that's because the Nazis destroyed it because it had done its function by 1943. They'd managed, as they saw it to win that battle in terms of killing Polish Jews. And within Treblinka, it's really small. That, to me, encapsulates the horror in almost a more emotional way Almost than a visit to Auschwitz-Birkenau, and that's because you realise that if if all you're going to do is to murder people, you need virtually no space because the, 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 there's no storage issue. The issue becomes body disposal, and they had a lot of issues with body disposal. But the issue isn't killing them. Um, so you see that 900,000 people, nearly a million people, can die in this tiny area, and it only took a tiny number of of, of SS to organise and supervise it.
3: Over the course of the Holocaust, actually quite a lot of German people had to be involved. For example, a lot of Jews were shot by an And for example. Do you have any sense, I know you've interviewed some some of the perpetrators, do you have any sense of how they could participate in just moments of unbelievable barbarity? Were they coerced into doing this? Were they they scared or did they enjoy it? It's really hard to understand people's motivations.
2: Yes, um, and the first thing to say is that enormous numbers of them weren't German. And extraordinary documents in the book um, from Germans complaining about the barbarity with which the Romanians are killing Jews. Imagine, oh they're, they're, the Germans are also complaining about how the Croats are killing people. They're saying, oh you know they, they're, they're talking about the barbarity. So so the notion that in any way it's confined to Germans is wrong. In the Baltic States, many many of the killers were locals. And the one I met, uh, Petra Stoionko, was very much a proud Lithuanian involved in in killing people. And he was doing it, I think, uh, like many of them were, for a whole sort of basket of reasons, really. One was obvious anti-Semitism. Uh, another was um, we underestimate, I think, avarice. I mean, actually, uh, they, they, they stole a whole load of stuff from the Jews. Um, another was a sense the old trope of, of the Nazis, that, that Jews equal communists, which is still, in my travels in Eastern Europe, a number of people say to you, oh, well, yeah, but you've got to understand Marx was a Jew and uh, Judaism is communism, which is, non- is nonsense in terms of, you know, we know Stalin was, in some respects, anti-Semitic. And so, nonetheless, there was that equation, Judaism equals communism. Uh, there was also a sense as one very distinguished Lithuanian has analysed this, that they were cleansing themselves with Jewish blood. That's to say there had been quite a lot of, of uh, collaboration with the Soviet forces who were in the Baltic states before the Germans came in. And, of course, if you'd collaborated with them, one sure way of showing the, the, the Germans that, in fact, you were way above board was to massively go into the enterprise of of killing Jews. So you had all of that. Plus you had one other, which I haven't seen that much in the literature there. Uh, although there's a lot of new academic work on this, it's really fascinating. But certainly I felt having met a number of these people is a big element is straightforward sadism, which is actually they're getting a kick out of this. You know, we, we see now on the internet, you, you, there's a, all the issues of uh, pornography and in the internet, of violent pornography, which is just horrible stuff. Uh, which um, clearly some people get a a kick off. I mean, and actually there's some deep, dark stuff going on here. And uh, I quote a number of examples in the book where we now know that there were people who were really, really enjoying this.
3: So the bit people probably still find hard to understand is just, you know, where you've got people who su- seem to be suspending all moral judgment, killing, say, babies, um, young children. How does someone get to that stage? Because you can't imagine necessarily this happening in a peacetime war. Or-
2: no, I think that's right. I think that you tend to find that genocide happens in war. Um, it's very hard to think of a genocide that isn't within a war and a very war- violent, bloody war. But I think that you, you know, you think you look at Oscar Groening, who... I met and who we interviewed for the Auschwitz series who worked in Auschwitz. And he talked about how, when we put to him, Frank Stucker, who did the interview with me, he was a brilliant researcher who's sadly died now, but was a brilliant researcher who uh, was with me then. And he, we asked Oscar Groening, how could, you, you know, when you thought about the children, what we think of. And he said, well, the enemy isn't the children. The enemy is the blood in the children that can grow up to be a Jew. So what's happening is the reason that they feel justified, and Himmler himself explicitly says this in a speech in 1943, the reason is because what's the point in killing the adults when you leave the children? Because the children, and Himmler says, they will grow up to be a race of Avengers, and then they will come after our children. So in fact, the logic is, the warped logic is, if you really really love your own children then you should kill those children these other children because those other children will come after and try and kill your children so all you've and if we are brave enough and hard enough now we have solved the problem for all time not just for a generation that's the kind of stuff that's going on in their heads
3: something i find interesting is that even after it's happened Some perpetrators still actually can just feel able to justify it, Mori. They don't deny their involvement. They actually quite openly say that they were involved, and they people at the time and later on could could find a moral justification for their acts.
2: Yes, I mean that was one of the reasons that I've carried on with this for twenty five years because I, I never, I was always driven by my own in TV history by my own curiosity and interests, and and if I ever felt that I got to the bottom of something, I never felt I wanted to stick with it. I wanted to do something else. And the reason I'm still with this so many years on is because I'm you, you dig and dig and dig and you can't get to the bottom of it. And one of the reasons you can't is because you don't expect the response you get. And 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 if you talk to, for example, um, former members of the NKVD, the Stalin secret police, who were involved in the horrendous deportations, say of the Kalmyks or the Chechens or the Crimean Tatars, you talk to people involved in those terrible deportations, which were really vile. And for the most part, what they'll say is, "Well, um, if I didn't do it, I'd be shot." And of course, it's very little, very, very hard to go somewhere in an interview if you say to someone, "Why did you do it?" And they said, "Well, it's dead easy. You know, uh, I felt I had a gun to my head." And then, we're, you know. now that may or may not be so, but certainly in terms of their own way of dealing with it and talking to you about it, that's what they say. What was extraordinary about all these these former Nazis is, I don't think I ever heard that. I don't think we ever heard that in all the years we were doing. I don't think I don't think we did what you, you you tended to hear was, at the time we felt it was the right thing to do, there was an internalisation of belief. And it's that that makes this terrifying and, and also endlessly, endlessly
3: fascinating. It, it kind of makes Holocaust denial even more ridiculous when the perpetrators themselves yes. don't deny it. It's- yes.
2: Well, one of the extraordinary things about Oscar Groening is the reason he gave us that uh, an interview on camera was because... He was he was really upset at his stamp collecting club when he came across a Holocaust denier, and he said, "I was there." It's almost like he was it was an attempt to deny that he had done his job. He said, "I was there." Don't tell me it didn't happen. I was there. So he was he, he spoke out because he was against
3: Holocaust denial. Uh, quite extraordinary. So obviously, you've, you've talked about some nations, people collaborated with the Nazis, but in terms of the other powers around the world, could they have done more to prevent the Holocaust? Obviously, they weren't the perpetrators, but. Well, are they in some way culpable too? Well,
2: I think you've got, to, you've got to separate the two questions in a way. Could they have done more? Yeah, of course, you can always do more. Are they culpable, implying kind of, can you blame them? It's very it's very hard. I always have these discussions with other, with academic historians who, because who, um, I get emotionally, there's a certain level of emotional engagement when you're meeting people who suffered terribly and these sorts of things. And, of course, there's an argument which is, the job of the historian is to be kind of like, obje- you know, sort of objectively above it and never pass judgment because you're trying to understand and not judge and so on. And so when you say, well, are they culpable? You know, it's, it's hard to say. But certainly, there's the certainly more could be done. If you look at the 1938 Evian Conference where there's a conference about what to do about the fact that the Jews are being persecuted in Germany and Austria. And I don't think there's any doubt that if the West had said, we'll take them, Hitler would have said, Great have Where I do have a, a judgment about this is what was plain, and the World Jewish Congress said this at the time, was unless you look at the possibilities of Palestine as a home for the Jews, there's virtually no way this can be solved. And the British were running a mandate in Palestine. And at that point, the British refused to discuss it for all sorts of other reasons that they felt were good reasons. But nonetheless, if there had been a move to open the gates of Palestine, or Israel as it then became, well, split between Israel and Palestine, but nonetheless, complex history of that region. But nonetheless, if there'd been a move to accept large numbers of Jews at that point, then I think that, that would have been an extraordinarily valuable thing to do. Now, But that's easy for me to say and easy for anyone to say with hindsight and so on. But nonetheless, there were a number of people who knew this at the time, that that there was no possibility of individual countries accepting very, very large numbers of Jews who needed to come and needed to be taken away from that horror. But the possibility of Palestine, especially in the light of the Balfour Declaration of the First World War from the British, especially in the light of that, it was really uh, sad in retrospect that something wasn't done along those lines.
3: I suppose on a related note, one thing that's very interesting in the book is you note how the Jews in different occupied countries fared in the Holocaust and how some, such as Greeks... Um, very high percentage, or Hungarians, very high percentage were taken to Auschwitz or other camps and killed. Whereas in other countries, such as Denmark, quite a low number of Jews were killed. How do you think that? Why do you think there was such a difference between the different countries under occupation? Again, that's that's a that's
2: a huge, huge question um, because it depends on a number of variables. But what but what you see is that how the Nazis are uh, trying to impose what they call their Final Solution varies from place to to place, depending on a whole range of different factors. So it isn't the case to say that if you were a Jew in occupied Nazi territory, you were necessarily going to be killed. And that's because if you were a Danish Jew, the vast majority, more than 95%, didn't experience persecution and didn't experience certainly the the kind of persecution that happened elsewhere, and escaped, most of them across the sea to Sweden. But if you were a Greek Jew in Salonika, massive chance... That you would be killed. So the Nazis are operating a different level of—it's hard to say desire um, because they—they have the same level of desire. But there's a whole series of practical matters that influence them, such that the picture is not not at all uniform. It's extremely complicated, depending on all these different factors. Not least, the nature of the occupying forces, the nature of the Jews in the country, what proportion of Jews, for example, are foreign. You find this with the French that that they take a you know the, the Vichy French take a completely different view of this, depending on whether you're a quote French Jew or a foreign Jew. So you see that large numbers of, of immigrants coming into the country, they're the ones who the, the French almost want to to kind of deal with in some way first.
3: This story. It's incredibly bleak throughout. But there are a few examples of actual heroism among people in some of these occupied countries who did their best to save Jews. What do you think it was that made these people stand up and take often personal risk for no obvious gain to themselves?
2: Again, I think there's there's a number of different factors. One is culture. That's to say, if you look in Denmark, there was a, a belief that, I think, that uh, you're a Dane first and a... A Jew or a Christian or a whatever second, but there's a sort of, there is there was a cohesion of of culture whereby uh, there were Danish values about what we do, and that seemed to to mean that when the moment came to try and protect people, they were absolutely willing to try and do it. But then you look at it. it What's fascinating fascinating is the Netherlands because. There was, a, there was a, a very little tradition of anti-Semitism in the Netherlands, and yet more than 70% of, of Dutch Jews were, were killed. Um, and so you can't ever... The, the thing about this subject is once you think you've come up with a one catch-all explanation, something else appears that, it, that shows that's, that's, not, that's not so. So what's extraordinary is you find that a country that doesn't have much anti-Semitism in it, nonetheless enormous numbers of Jews are murdered. Um, And there, partly, it might be that there's a sense that, well, we're in a country where there isn't anti-Semitism, so we're relatively safe. And there's a sense of, well, this can't really be happening, can it? So when the Dutch civil servants who cooperated massively with the the Nazis do so, I don't think they think they're doing it thinking this is going to end with, with murder of enormous numbers of people. I think they do it thinking, well, you know, there's a certain bureaucracy and a certain legal system and, and so on. So you see that, that within any of these societies, there are people who are a minority who stand up and say this is wrong. And you see in many cases, it doesn't actually help necessarily in practical terms. What it offers is a moral statement of what's happening. And then you see in other, in other environments where people have been uh, educated and, and brought up to be viciously anti-Semitic, there's a sense of, well, um, um, what's happening broadly might be the right thing, not necessarily the killing, but certainly the
3: deportations. You've raised the point there of how much did people actually know of what was going on in the Holocaust? I mean, to what extent did people outside of the death camps, outside the killing zones, what if they aware of where the Jews were being sent? Were they all being sent to their death?
2: It's grey, essentially. It's grey. It's not a black and white. There's levels of grey of knowledge. If you're looking at, if you're saying, well, did the vast majority of people say in Germany know about what was happening in Treblinka or Auschwitz? Um, no. Did they know something bad's happening to Jews in the East? Yes. The reason they knew something bad's happening to Jews in the East is number one, they've seen them being put on trains, in the been taken out, marched through the town, and taken away somewhere. Where do they think? they're going they're not going somewhere better given the rhetoric of the regime the idea that anybody in their right minds could possibly think these people had been taken somewhere better than where they are wherever it is it's got to be somewhere bad it's worse than where we are so they know that everybody knows that secondly they've been listening to this rhetoric from adolf hitler he's completely open he's talking about if there is a world war we're going to, there will be an extermination of the jews his speeches are full of of absolute vitriol about the Jews, about the danger of the Jews, how they're the wire pullers. And so, I mean, you know, it's clear what the head of your government feels about these people. So they've been taken away, something bad's happening, and, and our head of state is going on and on and on about something, something bad here. So, so, of course, there's a knowledge. It must be that something bad's going on. They then start hearing from, you know, pretty much in any street, there'll be a number of people who've got husbands or sons or brothers or whatever fighting in, in the East. Anyone who is fighting in the war in the East is aware that this isn't a war of extermination, that it's a different kind of war, and very probably that there is targeting of civilians and Jewish civilians in particular in ways that are absolutely horrific. Well, they're going to come home. They come home on leave. They're not, they're not going to keep quiet about this. Um so the idea that something bad, something really bad is happening in the East, I think is it has to be prevalent. And you see that in a number of uh, reports from the time, because the Nazis are also doing reports about uh, the mood of the public. And there's one, I think, I think it's from southern Germany at the end of the 1942, that says there is major disquiet amongst the population about rumours of shootings and killings of Jews in the East. And then it says something really interesting. And it says the disquiet, and I'm paraphrasing, but the disquiet is if we lose the war, what will happen to us? It's really fascinating. It isn't that there's a sense necessarily of outrage at the inhumanity of this. We must get up and stop it happening. It's a sense of, oh, my God, what are they going to do to us if we if we lose?
3: One force that you might have expected to prevent or at least less than the Holocaust would be Christianity against the Vatican. And also, Europe at the time was far more, people far more, had far more strong Christian beliefs than they do nowadays. But this didn't seem to have that much effect. Why do you think it was that Christianity and Christian belief didn't do more to stop people participating in something that's clearly against any kind of religion?
2: Well, I think, you know, and in the, in the book, I'm very critical of the Pope at the time um, for not speaking out. And it's important to try and understand why he doesn't. A number of churchmen do of course. There's a number of individual churchmen who do speak out, notably Bishop von Galen, who speaks out about the dreadful euthanasia action against the, the mentally and physically disabled. Uh, so there are isolated incidents, but you can absolutely say individual churchmen did have a moral sense. Overall, though, you can't say that uh, the church, certainly the Catholic church, comes out of this well. And there are a number of reasons for that. One is Certainly what the Pope seems to be concerned about is communism. He's deeply, deeply anti-communist, frightened of communism because it's absolute godless Bolshevism. Secondly, I think he's weak. And he's weak in the sense that he believes that if I speak out, something worse might happen all the time. Well, of course, that's the reason in any situation to do nothing. And I think also... He doesn't speak out because he has this—he has this sense that his role is to protect the institutions of the church, and there's always a risk. He feels, I think, that the Germans might occupy the Vatican. There, there certainly, from uh, autumn of 1943 uh, until the summer of 1944, there's German troops immediately outside in Rome. So he's—I think—he's he's anxious that the Vatican might be. Uh, um, invaded the Vatican, might even be bombed by the Germans, that churches might be overrun, and so on and so forth. So there's always reasons not to do anything. But also underlying it, I think, there's surely in certain aspects, not with the individual Pope, I think, but you look at Slovakia. Slovakia is a really, really interesting case because the president of Slovakia, Joseph Tiso, is a Catholic priest. He's a Catholic priest, and he is presiding over the deportation of Jews, And yet, even when he's tried after the war and executed for war crimes, he's sitting in his cell in his full priest's garb. He's not excommunicated. Now, that is, it seems to me, is absolutely terrifying. And very hard to see how the church comes well out of this, because this is after the war and there's still no move made against him. And he he goes to his death as a Catholic priest, having been responsible for some truly horrific things um, during the war.
3: There were cases where Jews themselves became part of the apparatus of the Holocaust. Clearly they were under very different circumstances than non-Jews taking part. But I know you've spoken to some of the people, at Sonic Commando, for example, and there were also Jewish councils in the ghettos. How did they manage to kind of square the moral complexities of what they were doing?
2: Some of the most extraordinary people I've ever met in my life are former Zonder Commandos. And the Zonder Commando is somebody who was forced, on pain of their own immediate death, to assist the Germans in the uh, running of uh, the extermination machinery. So, for example, if you remember the Zonder Commando, you could be involved in uh, disentangling the bodies in. The uh, gas chambers. After they people have been murdered, and cleaning the gas chambers, in sorting all the belongings of the Jews, in burying the bodies, and carrying the bodies around, and so on. So you, you you were doing stuff really of absolute nightmare. And there were a number of cases. The, some of these under commandos said to me where the the Jews they were uh, say shaving their hair before they in, in a camp like Sobibor. If you were a woman, you would have your hair shaved before you went into the gas chamber because the Nazis wanted to use the hair for um, they made felt and stuff out like and other industrial processes. And you're doing this. And it might be that one of these women you're saying, whose hair, hair you're shaving says, why are you doing this? You're doing this just to save your own life because they suspected what was gonna to happen to them. And to a large extent, these under commander could be traumatized by that. But what else are they going to do? What else are they going to do? Um, uh it's 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 like of all the moral dilemmas you're ever gonna face, it's it's uh it's one of the, the absolute toughest. And I would never ever um judge anyone in that situation I mean, it would be absolutely disgusting to judge somebody in that situation because what are they gonna do? What are you gonna do? Um but nonetheless, it was an absolutely horrendous situation. I always remember the most probably the most extraordinary person I've ever met in my life, man called now dead, called Toivi Blatt, who was a commander at Sobibor death camp. And uh, I asked him what he'd learned from the experience of being a commander there. And he said, I've learned this, nobody knows themselves because it's not until you're placed in a situation like that that you know what you're capable of and who you are. And he said, said, you see these people walking down the street and, and they ask you for directions or you ask them for directions and they say, oh, down here and turn right or whatever. And he said, I always look at them and just think, you know, you seem a nice guy, but what would you be like in Sobibor? Because you just you simply don't know. It's actually something a, a former member of the SS once said to me, which was um, the trouble with the world today is people who've never been tested go around making judgments about people who have been tested. And whilst that didn't alter me thinking what he did was disgusting and disgraceful, nonetheless, it makes you think. And and so there is extraordinary stories from the Commander, quite extraordinary I put them in a different category altogether than I do a man like Chame, Mordecai Chamberon who was the guy who uh, was the chairman of the council of the Lodz ghetto, who absolutely plainly used his authority within the ghetto for his own personal ends. I mean, he I've met a woman who was sexually abused by him, for example. I mean, he absolutely gratified himself. To me, that's a whole different, uh, different matter. And I do think... Uh, though you can understand again that all these people are placed in situations deliberately by the Nazis in order to make their situations impossible. It doesn't mean that you have to um, sexually abuse people.
3: Did you find yourself going through the book at various points thinking what you might have done in these circumstances?
2: I think it's inevitable that you, you do, but what I've learned is you simply that it, you simply can't know and the reason you can't know is because I tried to explain this once and I came up with the idea that I was giving this talk in, I don't know, was at school or somewhere? And I said, imagine that all the doors are now locked and we have to stay in here for 24 hours and there's no water, nothing. We're just sitting here locked in here. And we've got to go to the toilet in the corner or do whatever, but we're not allowed out of this room for 24 hours now. And then tomorrow, there's maybe 100 of us, someone comes in with, with a one-litre bottle of water. What are you going to do to get some of that water? How are you going to decide who gets that water? And you know that there's not going to be another any more water for another day, and then there's going to be another one liter bottle of water. What are you going to do? And um, I don't think sitting here we can know what we're going to do. I don't think you know whether you'll be the person who goes no 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 the, there there's somebody there is sick they should have some more well, I'm you know or are you or are you going to fight for it? Are you going to try and hurt other people to get it? Or are you going to say, no, please, I, you know, do you know what you do in that situation now? If, and if you don't know what you do in that situation now, how can you possibly even begin to guess what you would do were something similar to this happened again? And then on top of that, you've got the fact that were you then, you wouldn't be you because you're only you because of the whole cultural upbringing you've had in this society. So you can't transpose yourself back then, because you wouldn't be you anyway. So, but, but if you ask, well, what would I do if something similar was to happen? As I say, even then you can't know because we, I think we all have these wonderful ideas about ourselves until we're actually tested. And then maybe we, maybe we turn out to be better people than we think
3: we are, or maybe we turn out to be a lot worse. So far we've been talking mainly about the Jewish victims, but they're also, as the book shows, people, Sinti and Roma, for example, were killed in large numbers there were various physically, mentally disabled people killed and um, homosexuals. Do you see that as part of the Holocaust? Do you see that as a, se- a separate crimes? Um,
2: how I look at it is that what we call the Holocaust is the decision and implementation of measures to exterminate the Jews. But you cannot possibly understand that unless you include all these other things because the Nazis don't use the word Holocaust, They you talk about the final solution of of the Jewish problem, but they have a a horrendously deeply racial mindset that encompasses lots of different things of which the epicentre is hatred of the Jews. So you, you, you can't write about this or make a film about it, in my view, without looking at the penumbra, without looking at, well, if I'm trying to understand motivations, what kind of people are they? and profoundly they're racist people, but how? What, what other beliefs around that do you imagine? So so absolutely, I think that it's important to look at all these other issues as well, if only to see how the, the Nazis themselves differentiated their belief system between them all.
3: The Holocaust clearly wasn't the only genocide that's happened, even sadly, in the 20th century. Do you think that it is still... A magnitude greater or is it is it still the worst crime in human history?
2: The reason I would say it was is partly to prevent it being perceived as just another bit of history, if you like. To me it's it's different. Why is it different? It's different because uh, it happened relatively recently ago and 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 I think that impacts on me because I've met so many people who were affected from it, and there's a there's a sense of history when you can actually meet and talk to people that makes it a different kind of history than talking, say, about Genghis Khan. But also, it's because you know, and I and I and I always think of I very much valued a relationship I had with um, Professor David Cesarani, who helped me on my Auschwitz series as a consultant, and who sadly died last year. But I always thought he was a great intellectual. And in conversation with me, he said, I asked him that same question, and he said, well, I don't think in human history there's been a case where an individual leader has decided that one ethnic religious group will be exterminated down to the last baby, and and we will create in a short period of time mechanistic means to be able to do and achieve this. And I do think that is different. I'm not sure that that's been attempted in quite that way before. Hitler pointed, for example, to what was happening uh, in America with the death of the Native Americans. Uh, Well, it was horrendous what happened, of course, in, in North America. But nonetheless, Native Americans survived. There's still Native Americans around. You look at certain areas of Europe and there are no Jews. There's no question in my view that had the war not stopped and had he carried on, you would have a situation in Europe where there was not one not one, and that is a quite if you think of it that that is a truly extraordinary thing when I did a series about Stalin um I always remember in Ukraine, I was interviewing uh we were interviewing this guy who was a member of the Ukrainian resistance movement, and at the end of the war he'd been sentenced, i think to twenty years in a gulag, and he'd come back and he was now a grandfather with his children around, and he said they did it and I was thinking, isn't that interesting, you know Stalin unspeakable monster that he was, didn't kill him. And now, and in fact, it was really horrible because I had thought of Himmler's quote about children when I saw this this family, this guy's family. And there's a breadth of nihilistic, horrible, brutal vision to this that wasn't there with Stalin. And that nihilistic, brutal vision was, it's this is our job, this generation, to sort this. And if we do it, it's over forever. and I don't know I've seen that anywhere else.
3: And this is slightly beyond the scope of your book, but do you believe that the perpetrators of the Holocaust who survived the war were sufficiently bought to book afterwards?
2: No, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. The vast majority of, of SS who worked at Auschwitz got off scot-free. Absolutely not. There, there, there's, there was a sense, um, I mean, one of the terrible, terrible things about it was that after the war, I think there was a view taken that if you weren't personally involved in killing somebody, then um, you weren't going to be charged. And, of course, because they developed uh, gas chambers, which needed a tiny number of Germans and a large number of Thunder commando but a tiny number of Germans, to operate them, the vast majority of SS Auschwitz, you could you could say, well, I, would, I wouldn't personally be involved in the killing. And the answer of which... The answer to which ought to be, um, of course, you were because you were involved in the, the the process. And in fact, what's interesting about the case of Oscar Groening, who who we interviewed for the Auschwitz series, and who then just last year, the year before, was actually finally put on trial when he's a very very old man now, and that was because only in the last few years had they changed the law in Germany, or they, the law had evolved to a place where the position I've just had is the position they hold. But they didn't hold it in the nineteen late nineteen forties and fifties, otherwise enormous numbers of people, more people, would
3: have been brought to book. Do you think that had something to do with the political realities of Post World War to Europe,
2: it had lot. It had there's lots and lots and lots of reasons for it. One is exactly that the political political realities of post World Europe. That actually there was a very strong sense in which we've got to move on. There was a sense of the new enemy is very clear. It's it's the Soviet bloc. What good in West Germany does it do to try and dismantle all of the various apparatuses of of local government and government by start going well? Hang on, is that what exactly did you do under the Nazis? What exactly you know there was there was a, a real movement for saying, we've dealt with the people at the very top. Okay, the Nuremberg trials, let's, you know, kind of move on. And you can see and understand, I suppose, why that happened. There was also all of the sense we have of the importance of the Holocaust wasn't there then so much. Um, The very word Holocaust didn't come into the public consciousness really, really sort of in a major, major way until the 70s. There wasn't, people think Holocaust Memorial Day has been with us since the war. It hasn't, it's only been with us for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so.
3: The sense back then was very, very, very different. Just finally, are there any lessons from this book in terms of how the world could try to prevent something of this magnitude happening again?
2: Well, I I, I never say there are lessons from history because I don't think there can be lessons from history because lessons implies that you can take a rubric, you can say, well, this happened this way, so now this will happen. And I don't think you can do that with history, but I did call the original series years and years and years ago, warning from history, because I do think history offers us some broad warnings. And I think there's a number that you can perhaps think about with this. The first is this sense that things happen incrementally or can happen incrementally, that once you allow a a state to happen that's racist, that's racist beliefs, that you educate children to believe you're better than they are, uh, and the other people are not really proper human beings. That's something that's a real warning. It doesn't mean it's necessarily going to lead to this. Very often it probably won't. But nonetheless, I would say it's, it's pretty much, it's almost a necessary precondition of, a, of some of this motivation that was going on there. Another big one is, is to think that something that's a minority, a tiny minority of what look like loonies, with catastrophic economic change, people can turn to them. The Nazis got 2.6% of the vote in 1928. Less than five years later, Hitler is at the head of the most popular party in Germany and is chancellor. He was dismissed. He was, there were plenty of people in 1928 thought they're a lunatic fringe. Well, what do we is a lunatic fringe now? And where can it be in five years? You don't know. I mean, it, that things change. And what changed was not him. There's this notion of, oh, it's amazing, a charismatic leader and so on. And and I've made a special study of charisma because it, it's interesting to me what charismatic leadership is about. And what you see is what charismatic leadership is primarily about is a connection with people. And the connection is only possible if the people you're trying to connect with have a need for you. So in 1928, a lot of people think this guy's a jerk because there's no need. You have a massive economic catastrophe where all the institutions that you've trusted, all of the respectable politicians, if you like, have let you down. And then actually someone who isn't a respectable politician, someone who actually is way left field, you begin to say, Do you know, we need a massive change. And I did think this guy was a bit of a loony, but actually the more you look at what's happening now, I mean, a chain, you know, can't be all bad to have change. And you can see almost how swiftly that can happen once you get banks collapsing, massive unemployment. I once said to a, a former a former Nazi, I said, you know, he was he was the most unconventional politician you're ever going to come across. And the guy said to me, yeah, and they were the most unconventional times you can imagine. So exactly. So I think that there are all those sorts of things that you, you can look at and think about. Um, And also what happens when you don't do things early enough, when you let things kind of drift or you start doing what Neville Chamberlain starts doing in 1938, which is not understand what you're dealing with or or what, project onto people that, oh, they can't seriously mean that, can they? I mean, you look at what he's saying. he's not uh, This is what's extraordinary about the whole thing. If you read Mein Kampf, he's talking about the Jews are the most horrific problem that have to be dealt with, and Germany needs space, and the only way of getting space is the um, Western section of the Soviet Union. I mean, he says in, it, it's quite extraordinary. If, there, if it was a novel you were writing, it would not be credible, and it wouldn't be credible. Because you, you would think, oh, no, the, the lead character here, they must hide stuff. They must have some, they must, they must, they mustn't actually say it. But it's, he does.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging
0: And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's pcom slash history extra.
3: That was Lawrence Rees. The Holocaust, A New History, is set to be published by Viking on the 26th of January. And you can read a version of this interview in the January edition of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this month's issue, we have articles on the Anglo-Saxon's final battles, the history of Sicily, the Stauffenberg plot, and Elizabeth I's Irish nemesis, among other things. You can get hold of our January issue in all good newsagents in the UK and in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier print edition that's currently in the shops. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do join us next time for more from the world of history.
4: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra And for more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com It's packed with articles, quizzes image galleries and much more Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast